With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This episode of Success, How I Did It is brought to you by Chubb. Learn more at chubb.com slash bi. When PayPal sold to eBay in 2002, Max Levchin didn't know what to do with himself. He'd co-founded this company with Peter Thiel, and he built it into a huge Silicon Valley success story with the help of Reid Hoffman and Elon Musk. But after it got acquired, all four of those guys left, except Max just couldn't let go. But for a time, I was sort of, my key card still works. Why don't I just come back to work? Eventually, HR told him he might be better off in a coffee shop. From Business Insider, this is Success, How I Did It. I'm Allison Chantel. On this episode, we have Max Levchin, who talks about his failures before PayPal and how he stumbled into product market fit. He also really struggled to find himself after the acquisition, so much so that his girlfriend dumped him. He's since gone on to launch a bunch of new startups, and his girlfriend got back together with him. But the one where he spends his most time at is called Affirm. Affirm does small loans, and they don't charge any penalties or fees. But the story of Max really starts in Kiev, Ukraine, where in the mid-80s, life was about to change. So Chernobyl's somewhere between 100 miles and 90 miles north of Kiev, so it's quite close. Levchin was 10 years old, and his family was full of physicists. Everyone except for my dad, who was a chemist, was a physicist. This gave him an interest in science early on, and it eventually led to a passion for coding. But it also meant that his mother saw some early signs of something that was very wrong. So her job was at, randomly enough, National Institute of Food Hygiene. I think that's the right translation. And she manned or womaned the giant spectrometer slash radiation meter. And so she would test foods produced all over Ukraine for radioactive poisoning, which of course 99.9% of the time were not at all radioactively poisoned, except sometime in April of 1986, they started becoming a little bit more concerning. Even before we knew that Chernobyl had a nuclear explosion, so Chernobyl's somewhere between 100 miles and 90 miles north of Kiev, so it's quite close. As they figured out that the government was engaging in a cover-up, my parents, my grandmother basically shipped me and my younger brother to Crimea, which is kind of the southernmost point of Ukraine, now no longer Ukraine, part of Russia. And I spent the next year and a half there. When I came back, life began uh, remaking itself. I went to a new school, but my mom... Now, her job was extremely important. She was constantly testing foods, and there's all sorts of new data coming out. And so her research primary investigator told her, hey, you need to learn how to code because writing down 
all these results by hand just isn't cutting it. We need to start storing data using computers. And so I think I was 11 or 12 when I got back to Kiev. My mom said, hey, they gave me a computer at work. I need to learn how to program this thing. You're coming with me. And so my exposure to programming was actually sort of instigated by my mother who said, this is going to be a lot faster if the two of us learn in parallel and then you help me and I'll help you. At some point, I actually talked my way into having one of these really garbagey Eastern Bloc manufactured computers home with me. And that was like the, the pinnacle of my life where like now I will do nothing. I'm just going to write code all day long on this East Germany made equivalent of a uh, Spectrum ZX with, with a slightly nicer screen. Yeah, a huge upgrade from you were writing code by hand for a time there, right? So actually, before Some I was able to get my hands on this computer occasionally at home, I just couldn't get enough of it. So when I wasn't able to go hang out in her lab, I would just write code on, on a piece of paper. Maybe more incredibly, though, you would actually then plunk it into a computer later and it seemed to work. Yeah, I, it actually did. I would debug it by hand, too. So you all moved to the United States when you were a teenager, which I imagine is hard and probably a bit shell-shocking. What was that like? I think I took it in stride. I made a very conscious decision to become an American with a capital A as quickly as possible. So I, I think I was very busy trying to Americanize or assimilate and spent a lot less time trying to realize how difficult it is. Certainly plenty of cultural shocks where the idea of not buttoning your shirt all the way to the top was something I had to learn first day of school or uh, learning what deodorant is for, things like that. <laughs> so it sounds like the transition went pretty smoothly and graduate from University of Illinois and promptly head to Silicon Valley. I actually hung around campus for a little while longer because one of my companies was uh, failing and I didn't feel like failing, having it fail in transit. I let it fail while stationary, but once it failed, I moved to Silicon Valley. I was in company number three three or four, depending on how you count, all of which had failed. And right between failure number four and PayPal, I finally said this would be a good opportunity to go to Silicon Valley since that's where all my friends go and sometimes their companies don't fail. How did you meet those people and like what lured you there? This was so late my, 1990s, right? This is 1997, 1998. So I, I kind of figured out that I wanted to code and I hadn't really changed my plans since I was 12. By the time I was in college, I just coded a lot more because I finally had my own computer and I could go to labs. I don't think I slept a lot. Certainly ate Snickers bars for lunch, dinner. I was coding in the slab all the time when these two guys stopped by and said, hey, what do you do here all day long and night? You should come with us. We're going to start a company. And we started a company and it failed about a year later in 95. Didn't work primarily because we were based in Champaign, Illinois. And it's very hard, and we're basically trying to mooch off university resources to do things, and that, that really came to a crashing halt eventually. But in that process, I became friends with these two guys. One of them is Luke Nosek, who is just, until very recently, a partner at Founders Fund, and since left to start his own fund. The other one is Scott Bannister, who has a whole bunch of interesting accomplishments to his name. So I've sort of stayed friends with these guys forever, and the one thing they did after our first company failed is they moved to Palo Alto because they sort of knew the lay of the land. And I was still three years off the boat and sort of like, well, my grandma told me to graduate college, so I'm going to go back to graduating college. They would send me emails and tell me, hey, Palo Alto is one, warmer, two, has more venture capital, three, all the cool kids are here. I said, well, I'm going to graduate college, but as soon as that's done, I'm, I'm going to come join you guys. And so that's why and how I did that. So you head out there, and how do you kind of get your footing? Yeah, I got there by car. I didn't really make any arrangements, so I just crashed on Scott's floor. 
and it was really hot in Palo Alto in 1998, which is when this was. And so I had a habit of hanging out at Stanford during summer school because it was all air-conditioned. So I could sneak into a lecture, go in the back, pass out, and uh, sleep a little. And then Luke, who had just started another company funded by Peter Thiel, said, hey, Peter's giving a lecture at Stanford one of these days. You should go meet him because he's a really cool hedge fund manager type guy who is investing in startups. And so I sort of had in the back of my mind, I saw his name on the pinboard, wandered into a class that was taught by him, which turned out to be more like a seminar with like six people in the room. So it was a very small group of people. One, I couldn't sleep because it would be obvious. But two, he was actually pretty interesting. So I sort of stayed awake and chatted him up afterwards. In the uh, inimitable Peter Thiel fashion, we basically spent about 20 minutes talking after his lecture. He said, well, what are you doing in Silicon Valley? And I just got here two weeks ago. I'm probably going to start a company. He said, oh, great. We should meet for breakfast. We met the next day. He said, all right, so what companies are you thinking of starting? I had two ideas that I was kind of concurrently thinking about. I described number one, number two. I said, hmm, number one is better. I should do that. Said, okay, I'd like to invest. That was the sort of the, was less than 24 hours later, Peter was a committed investor in my new project. Wow. And uh, the next month or so, we were brainstorming. Obviously, I'd started four companies prior. They all, to some degree, failed largely because I had no idea what to do in terms of raising capital. And so my original sort of deal with Peter was, hey, I have to go raise money. It's great that you want to invest, but reality is it's probably going to need to be more. Help me learn how to raise money. And so for a time, he was still running his fund, and I was trying to put together a pitch deck. And I think within a day or two, he was sort of like, I already have no idea what you're doing with this stuff. Why don't I help you? And so he started coming with me to the pitches, over time, it became very clear that my role in these pitches was always to answer difficult technical questions while Peter was sort of painting the picture. And at some point, my agenda became, hey, he should be the CEO of this company. Like, I shouldn't be the CEO. I should just go write the code, which is what I know and enjoy doing. And so sometime by like December of 98 is when I remember I called Peter up and said, so what do you think about this whole CEO idea? And he goes, I thought about it. Okay. Like, all right, sounds great. So we incorporated what became wow. PayPal. Um, so you guys get started, and is it a payment company right from the get-go? No. So you pivot into that. We pivoted six times by my count, but you can probably find more pivots if you wanted to. The original idea was actually the idea that I pitched Peter, which was, in retrospect, a brilliant idea before its time, or asinine, or both. But my thesis was that at some point, Mobile computers will be in everyone's pockets. And this wasn't entirely from the moon because Palm Pilots had just launched a couple of years prior and everybody was toying around with those things. My theory was very soon people in trucks will be taking notes about their cargo and people in offices will be doing inventory. So this will be a device that has a place in enterprise. What I was going to have a PhD in, which of course never materialized, was cryptography. And so my interest was in computer security. I really wanted to develop products in that space. I wanted to cut over from being an academic to being an entrepreneur in, in computer security. So the pitch to Peter was, hey, all these Palm Pilots are going to be very important in the workplace. This data is going to be pretty sensitive. There's no security on these Palm Pilots right now. You store a piece of data, it's a text file, everybody can see it. If I steal your Palm Pilot, I can log in, the passwords are trivial to break. So let's build a 
full framework of secure everything, secure storage, secure communication. You can plug this thing into a serial port so you can transmit data. Somebody's going to have to encrypt it end to end. So I had this expansive vision of security in a workplace on mobile devices. Of course, that is kind of what we're all now expecting today from our iPhones and Android devices. But 20 years ago, it was probably way too early. So within a few months, Peter and I were essentially pretty clear that while it's a cool idea, it's probably from too far in the future. And we started boiling down, so what do we have? So we already, I already recruited a couple of engineers from Illinois that I knew were all writing code all the time. Some things we were writing, we're not exactly sure why, but we kept on building more and more sophisticated security infrastructure. Part of it involved something that Peter called digital IOUs, where you could say, I promise you $10 and I would digitally sign it. I think it was Reed who was by then part of this. Reed Hoffman. Uh, uh-huh. He was the co-founder of LinkedIn. Uh-huh. And, yeah. yeah, He was our first uh, board member, or se- second board member, I think. Scott was first, Reed was second. But Reed eventually became executive vice president of PayPal. He said, well, IOU is really cool, but how about invoices? You can actually settle the invoices, and so you need a way to pay them, but then you can close the loop. You don't have to rely on some other channel to pay the IOU. I was not particularly excited about it, but then I thought it would be really interesting to integrate credit card processing because I've never done it before. And so uh, one thing led to another. I built a way of settling transactions from Palm Pilot to Palm Pilot using, on the web, you could log in and pay using a credit card with this sort of haphazardly put together interface. But in the process of having this demo live, I started noticing that people were transacting through it. And then I got an email from someone saying, hey, do you have a logo? I need a logo ideally scaled down so I can embed it in my eBay auction posting. And up until that point, I had a really very peripheral understanding of how eBay worked and what it did. And so I just looked it up and thought, oh my God, this is like a a den of illicit commerce. I, I need to block them from touching my product. So I actually spent a fair amount of time trying to push eBay users away from PayPal. At some point, Peter asked me, what are you spending your time on? I said, oh, there's eBay users. They're just trying to use our product like crazy. They're like cockroaches. They try to block them off, and they keep on coming in through a different entrance. I said, I think that's what they call market pull. <laughs> I, th- I think all these people are trying to pay online, they don't have any better choice than your haphazardly put together demo. And so the last pivot of PayPal was pulled into its final shape by the eBay public. And so around 1999, your path crosses with Elon Musk. He had something called X.com, which merged with PayPal. The merger was consummated in 2000, but we knew of each other by 99 for sure. We didn't really realize that X was basically a direct competitor. Over time, it became very much an open race. It was kind of a rivalry to the extreme. And that at some point, we realized that we're doing exactly the same thing, competing with each other as aggressively as we could. And so um, at some point, Elon and Peter and I met up and basically said, we we should probably consider merging companies given the fact that we're just going to beat the crap out of each other in the market and some third party is going to come in and take it all away from us. And so by May 2000, we merged. So PayPal goes on to do great things. You guys eventually take it public and sell it to eBay too. I think the price was something like $1.5 billion. When you're in your 20s at this point, you've done a couple companies before, and finally you're tasting like real success. What was that process like of those two different types of exits? First of all, we decided to go public, not quite on a whim, but it was not a multi-year, oh, when do we possibly get big enough to go public? We're very focused on getting profitable. We're very focused to 
this march to profitability or march to scale of payments. And then somewhere in that, we sort of said, oh yeah, we're probably gonna go public at some point after. And that wasn't such a big deal at all. The business goals were much more important. As we started getting really close to going public, all kinds of crazy stuff started happening. We would get sued by patent trolls. Every other day, you would find, sort of, we file a lawsuit against you, you're infringing on this patent in our fax machine like over the weekend because we'd get faxed in Friday night and Monday morning, we're like, oh, one more lawsuit. Apparently, we're infringing on a telephone network patent. It was rotary dial. Like, how is that possible? So all this stuff was just this like constant cacophony of uh, things conspiring to keep us from being public. And so by the time we finally got there, the, the night before the last printing of the prospectus, half the company seemed to have moved to the printer's office. So I slept on the floor of the printer's office and then got awakened by a lawyer's boot who kicked me in the ribs. Not, not very hard, but we got sued again. And the underwriter's counsel basically said, if we have to reprint again, we don't think we can take you guys public. The, the market window is going to close, whatever that really means. It was one of these um, sort of bizarre moments where I had to run to some law office and the underwriters flew in their own lawyer, and I realized he really had no idea what he was talking about in a sort of technical sense. And so I fired him in the middle of this conversation. It was, it was extreme drama. And finally, we were allowed to go public, and it was a giant release. We are like, we opened, and we closed, and we closed up, and it was a big deal. And then like the next week, everybody was just very busy watching the price. The takeaway that I had was, oh my God, the, the run-up is so much better than being public. Why don't we go back to work? Like We were, we were so hammering at it four days ago, why is it okay now to just spend a lot of time staring at the price? And we're all locked up for six months anyway. It was a huge run up and a big, to me, downer afterwards. In a moment, we'll hear why PayPal sold to eBay just months after it went public. That's coming up right after this. We started making wine in 1948, one bottle at a time. Today, we produce nearly 20 million cases a year. Chubb has helped us grow for the past 30 years. They helped us prevent equipment problems during harvest and provided guidance when we started exporting internationally. Now we're working with them on cybersecurity. My grandfather taught me to make a wine that over-delivers. Chubb over-delivers. Learn more at chubb.com bi. Levchin says eBay tried to buy PayPal multiple times over the years, including right before they went public and then again right after it went public. But each time, PayPal said no. Every time we'd get a bid from eBay, I would gather the team and basically say, hey, tell me how tired are you? I know we're all tired. I know we've all been working seven days a week, four years straight. Do you want to sell the company or do we fight another day? And every time, the team was like, we fight another day. Like We have plenty. After the IPO, I think it was like six months in or something like that, it was another one of these meetings where I said, all right, eBay's back. This is definitely maybe the last time they're ever going to bid. If, if you're tired to the point where you don't want to handle another fight, another year of just beating each other up, maybe this is the right time to sell the company. And I didn't actually hear anyone say, let's do it. But as I looked around the room, I was sort of like, wow, these people have been just dragged through the competitive mud over and over again. And they survived every time, but it's going to get harder and harder. And so to me, that was kind of the, the point where I said, I, I think we should take this offer seriously as opposed to all the other ones where I'm sort of like, oh, we, we, can, we can do so much better than this. And so that, that was the, the beginning of the sale process. Wow. And that's some radical transparency there. Because most founders don't go to their teams, I don't think, and say, like, how do you guys feel about this sale? Uh, it wasn't the entire team, yeah. but it was basically my direct reports and their direct reports, I think. So it was, it was a pretty big room. But I, I really wanted to 
get the sense of commitment because the competitive dynamic between us and X and then us and eBay was pretty brutal. Payments in general is a very competitive space. And so it's, it's always been. And so you do go through with the deal, they acquire you and you were the last founder to sort of stick around the last of the original gang. And then it seems like you left, but then felt a little bit lost after. I think you might be the only person in history who's quit and then returned to work for a couple of weeks just to hang out with right. your old coworkers. That's, that's not a very well-known fact, but uh, <laughs> yes, I had the embarrassment factor of having our HR head who was still there take me aside and say, hey, I just want to remind you, you quit, right? Like, yeah, yeah, but you know, I kind of miss it. You may be better off hanging out with your work friends outside of work. Maybe you should hang out in nearby cafes instead of in the office. So I went up hanging out in the nearby cafes for a little while, and then I realized maybe I should just take myself away from this for a little while. But for a time, I was sort of, my key card still works. Why don't I just come back to work? But then why quit? It was definitely the time to go. It, it was very clear to me that eBay really wanted to make PayPal their own, and PayPal in many ways was a cult of personality built around the founding team. There were a lot of people in the early days that were kind of outsized personalities, certainly Peter and Luke. And I'd like to believe that I'm somewhere in that pantheon, but maybe not. So, I mean, it is, I think, an emotional decision for any founder to step away from what they've created. And it sounds like it certainly was for you. And it's, it sounds like your wife, you were dating at the time. And didn't she, did she break up with you during this period? She broke up with me very briefly. I think if you listen to her, she always had a plan to uh, take me back once I got my head cleared out. But at the time, it seemed terrible. But she basically said, look, you seem like a, a mess. You, you need to go spend a little time on your own, which, you know, I think we were actually apart for about four and a half weeks, but it seemed like eternity. I'm glad you guys found your way back to each other and you found a new mission. How did you find that? Like, how did you figure out what do I do next? What do I do with myself next? I didn't actually spend a lot of time figuring out what to do next. I really wanted to go back to work. Basically, always worked on stuff since my mom gave me that computer. And so this period of wandering through the wilderness was not healthy for me at all. And I dove in, wound up building this company called Slide, had a hand in a bunch of little companies, one of them called Yelp, and other companies you have not heard of. It got me my now wife back because she was like, ah, you seem very busy. Great, you're a human being again. But more to the point, I was engaged and I had lots of interesting things and people and ideas going around me and spend the next bunch of years, five or six years, I think, building this company called Slide, ultimately acquired by Google. And all throughout, I sort of wasn't really focused on the depth of the decision. I was just enjoying the fact that I had something that kept my brain fully engaged. After Google acquired Slide, which was not really what I had planned for it to do at all, but there's a variety of good reasons for it, not all worth getting into. The biggest one was I realized that I wasn't ultimately ever going to be thinking of Slide as my long-term future. It was not really ever the thing for me to do. After Google, my wife and I sat down and she said, look, after PayPal, I've seen you, you're you're a wreck. Like you, you should not be left alone without a plan. So let, let's just make sure we, we don't go through that dip. And said, sounds like a wonderful idea. What do you suggest? She said, you were so happy at PayPal. We, we met first year at PayPal. And so she'd seen the entire sort of growth fall and growth and fall again. I said, you should just go back and look at financial instruments. You know, there, all these ideas that you put on the shelf back then. And it's like, no, 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 I, I've done that. And I'm like, well, look what happened. You loved it at PayPal. You love security. You love serious problems. You want to solve things that matter. And she's completely right. I love difficult, serious problems. I actually called up a bunch of my old PayPal friends and said, hey, what did we leave behind during the PayPal years that we should have 
gotten on top of and didn't. We were too busy doing PayPal itself. And the best answer I got was from Nathan Gettings, who had since gone on to co-found Palantir and was my chief risk guy at PayPal. So, you know, one of the most amazing things that I always thought we should have done and never did was lending because it's such a mess. FICO score is so old and it's so inaccurate. And there's so many people that are excluded, you know, immigrants and people that dropped out of school and all these groups of people that are just completely misrepresented by it and therefore are getting terrible terms. And if you look at the products, they've just been perverted into harvesting machines for fees and no one really does lending honestly anymore. And you could get so much interesting data out of payment information so they can do lending better. And that conversation and a couple of other sort of similar ones in the old PayPal crew really triggered me to go back to look at payments and ultimately lending and start a firm. And a firm originally was really a math exercise to see if we can do a better credit score product. By the time we got really deep into how lending really works in the US, we sort of took it from a cool math problem to a moral mission of fixing what became short of a uh, certainly amoral and maybe worse industry of lending money to people that shouldn't be borrowing, lending it on terms that keep them in debt, lending them in ways that are not obvious to the borrower or not transparent. So we can do it right with math is kind of what a firm's mission and point of view has, has evolved to. You gloss over Yelp, but you were the very first investor in Yelp, which ended up actually being, of course, a huge and awesome deal. And you also sold a company to Google in there, which is something that not many people get to do. So I wanted to go back into those two life moments really quickly. First, talk to me about selling slide to Google. I think it wasn't quite the exit you had hoped for, like you said. It was about half the valuation when you sold it, even though it was 200 plus million when you did. So talk to me about figuring out, this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing, this isn't working, and then how do you then turn that and sell it to Google? So it was actually one of these very fortuitous moments where Google was just realizing that Facebook completely outstripped them in the social realm. And they were looking around for a team of people and a set of products. As far as I can tell, they really did not have a fully baked strategy, but they knew that they needed to catch up very quickly. I had a team of 128 people, and the team was one of the better teams that I've assembled. And so my commitment was primarily at that point or solely to the team. And when Google came knocking saying, hey, you guys are a team full of people that really understand social media. We're trying to catch up. We want to bring you on to help us get into social. Sort of like, this is kind of a marriage made in heaven. I have a team of people that really love social. I'm the only one who's kind of an imposter here. Like I will come and help and I will transition it in. But this is my way of helping everyone in this group of people. At all of these places, you've built a really strong culture. You've gotten a group of really smart people and friends together. How do you build this culture up? It seems like you have some unique tactics. I know in PayPal there were some interesting interviewing tactics, uh, something around IQ. You had to have a certain IQ to work at PayPal. Do you still do those things? I certainly evolved my approach to building teams over the years. I try to learn from people whose company's cultures I admire. And so with a firm, I'd realized that we're taking on an industry with lending in particular where morality and sense of right and wrong has given way to the sense of return on equity, which is the number one metric that everybody cares about in lending. And building a culture at a firm was front and center from the very, very beginning. At PayPal, the culture was incidental. It was more of a work really, really hard, be really, really smart. And it worked fine because the company was obviously successful, but probably could have done more. At a firm, 
it was definitely something that day one, I said, I'm going to write down my core values. I'm going to make sure that these values are in giant print on the wall of every office we ever have. And every year I'm going to review them and make sure they're as crisp and as clean and as memorable so that every member of the team can recite them from memory and know why we're here. Because if they can't, we have a real chance of falling into the same trap as what the industry did, where you dehumanize your customers and just think of them as sources of income, as opposed to what cred was supposed to be, helping people invest in a better future. So I know that you use data in all sorts of parts of your life, and you have in the past, and I think maybe you still do, tried to make your life and your health as efficient as possible. Uh, you are a big biker. Uh, you really watch what you eat. So what's your health routine like, and what have you learned from all this self-experimenting that you do to optimize? These days, having fairly demanding startup career as a CEO, a family with two little kids, and a few other obligations in life, I do less experimenting, but uh, I try to ride my bike every day. I try to uh, be pretty healthy as a eater, but I basically find a routine that I like and I just stick to it obsessively. If I skip a day, it's extremely uncomfortable. Like the number one power in any behavior is in turning it into a default. So long as you make those defaults healthy, it's very easy. You can just sort of exist in a fairly healthy universe. So long as your daily default is be on the bike, some days you'll miss because you're traveling or you have to, or you're sick. But most of the time, you'll just get up and get on a bike first thing in the morning, which is what I do. And so you've had this long, great career. You figured out a lot about life and business and everything along the way. What's the best advice you can give looking back on your career, the things that you really did right and the things that you wish you had learned sooner? Um, my grandmother once told me that the only difference between somebody with a failed life versus somebody with two PhDs is perseverance. There's nothing else. Like, and she really stressed that point. Like you just have to have enough grit to go through the parts where you want to quit and don't. So I think perseverance, grit, tenacity, when you fill in your favorite word for that, I think that is the number one success factor for entrepreneurs. And my number one internal, hey, get going already motivation line to myself is don't be lazy, just go do it. And the other one, would, I think I should have thought of 20 years ago, but I, I think I'm better now. Just take more risks. The younger you are, the easier it is to take risks. And I think once you get in the habit of taking risks, it becomes easier. Then you just sort of know that it's okay. You know, failure isn't really that big of a deal. And it's helpful to fail a few times early on in your career because you know exactly how the bottom feels. But you, you get in the habit of not always failing, and that becomes the good default. Great. Well, Max, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It. If you like success, help us spread it. Tell a friend who you think might like the show or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to Success in a lot of places, including Apple, Google Play, Radio Public, and Stitcher. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always email us at audio at businessinsider.com. I'm Allison Chantel. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Success How I Did It.